Well, welcome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming out tonight. I, I appreciate the uh, elders and Ken giving me a chance to, to speak and to talk to you a little bit. Um, I will tell you that if I have any qualification, it's uh, just enthusiasm and a, and a, uh, a love of God's Word. And, and I hope that comes through tonight. I was watching Chris, though, and Kyle up here, and I realized that in order to be on stage, you have to have some sort of sandals or flip-flops or something. I'm, so uh, so I, I keen's as close as I can get. So I'm sorry, the things between my toes, not so much. We don't do that. <clears throat> All right, let's turn to Luke 18. You know, Ken also helped me out on Sunday morning. He said, it's the most important parable we've talked about. Oh, great, Ken. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, so uh, we're going to try to, to spend some time unpacking this parable tonight, uh, and, and, I, and I pray that it's a blessing to you. I'll tell you that this is not about you. It's not about me. This is about uh, what can God tell us in his word. So let's start off with reading um, the parable that, uh, that we have here. Uh, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess." And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And with that short parable, Jesus had a mouthful to say. So uh, if you'd like to shout out, tell me, what do you think is the one word in this passage that is maybe the pinnacle of this passage? Sorry, louder, because I'm a little deaf. Pride, is that what you said? Okay. So the Pharisee did something and something didn't happen. The tax collector did something and something did happen. What was that something? Justified. So there was something going on here with justified. Something going on that Jesus was trying to communicate to these two guys. So justified is kind of a big word, so let's unpack that for just a minute. Um, flip over in your um, Bible to Romans 4. And uh, Paul there in Romans 4 gives us a pretty good definition um, of an amazing definition, actually, of justified. And let me read, starting in verse 2. He was discussing Abraham and justification by faith. Paul said this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies, there's our word, the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So when we see justified or justifies um, in, in the Bible and it talks about it, it's, it's giving us an accounting term. It's giving us a term that says there is something that happened and that something made you righteous before God. And it wasn't something you did. It was something that was accounted to you. It was something that just happened. It was something that you were blessed with. 
Now, justification, as big a word as that may be, is a word that encapsulates in so in, in one word, so much of what our struggle is on this earth and what God is trying to lead us to by giving us his Bible and, and Jesus. So it, it leads us to this question among all questions. The biggest question, the question that, uh, that, that exceeds everything we could ask, and that is, what is the destination of your soul? When your body wears out, where's your soul going to go? I mean, how do you get from an earthly dwelling to a heavenly dwelling and bypass the fire swamp, right? For the Princess Bride people in here. How, how do you get around that? I mean, what's it? so this is the discussion that he was having with these Pharisees and with the tax collectors and the sinners that was around him. Well, that to me is the big picture we're going to unpack tonight. Um, and so... The title of this in, in my Bible and probably in yours is The Parable of the Pharisee and the Tax Collector. I think a better title would be a little longer, possibly, but it'd be the parable of what you believe about man and what do you believe about God. Do you believe that man is basically good and perfectible? Um, or do you believe that man is basically sinful, selfish, and really can't make any lasting change in their life? Do you think God was was kind of his best days were behind him, that he spun up the universe and set a bunch of laws in motion, and now he kind of has to obey those laws and do what you ask him to do? Or do you believe in a, in a transcendent, interactive God that's part of everything you do in every part of life? This was the question at, at, that they were really asking. Now, before we dive into the text a little bit, I want to make this observation, and that is, is that we have to understand what the text says when Jesus spoke it. I mean, the, really, so we read the Bible and we want to know, so what's the answer, Jesus? Well, before we know the answer, we kind of need to know the question. What question was being asked? Well, if we don't understand the questions and the background and how people were coming to that point and what questions they really had, then the answers really don't mean very much to us. And what's even worse is a lot of times if we don't understand the questions, then we kind of make up the background our own. And we kind of speak for God, which is a really, really bad idea. So as we dig into this, I, I, I hope that in some short time tonight that we can walk the dusty roads of Judea, that we can smell the smells and hear the sights, that we can feel the triumph and the tragedy, that we can see the death and hear the screams, that we can understand some of the struggle that was going on that made Jesus address this parable to both the Pharisees and the, and the tax collectors that were around him. So with that, let's talk about the players just a little bit. Let's begin to set our table here. So we had a Pharisee and we had a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee as a sect, as a group, as best we can tell, was born around 300 B.C. Um, to give you some idea of the historical context of that, if you ask the Jewish rabbis in Israel today, who are your spiritual fathers, most of them would answer Pharisees. This is a tradition that started a long time ago and con still continues today in that tradition. So the Pharisees, what they came to believe um, is, the, is they came to believe the following, that God had given the Torah to Moses, and, but he had also given Moses some additional knowledge, some additional hints, some additional revelations. Today, if you ask the Jewish rabbis, they would say 
Well, God gave Moses the Torah during the day, and he wrote it down, and he gave Moses the oral Torah at night. And this oral Torah didn't get written down until 200 years after Jesus lived. So this oral Torah was passed from generation to generation to generation. Now, part of the reason they did this, without trying to unpack a lot of the reading and studying I did, is is that, that they were uncomfortable with the amount of detail that was in the Torah. For instance, God said, keep the Sabbath holy. But he didn't really give them a lot of idea, give us very much idea in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. He didn't give us a big idea of what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy. Well, the Pharisees evidently couldn't live with that tension, and so they invented, this is what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. We see this, the same sort of thing happening. Another quick example in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema. When, when you know, hear, the, hear Israel, the Lord your God is one. And down at the end of that, he says, um, it, it, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. Well, they, the, the Pharisees looked at that, and they said, what's a, what's a frontlet? We don't know what a frontlet is. It's an invented word. So the oral Torah... They used to come to the rescue, and now if you, if you look online, you, know, you find out they've invented, the, you can see pictures of the phylacteries. And they're little boxes where they take a little scripture and they stick them on their head when they're praying. And they wrap things around their arms. So these kinds of traditions came with the oral Torah. Um, now, the oral Torah became, as you can imagine, since it had so much more detail, then it became the glasses, if you will, through which the Pharisees began to see the law. Now, the problem with that is it changed their assumption about the law. It changed what they valued about the law and, it, and, and even what was important. Over time, they began to feel like, look, if you deny the oral Torah, which is they referred to, Jesus referred to that as traditions, if you deny the oral Torah, then, you, then you've denied the written Torah. They're, they're both the revealed Word of God and they're both equally as valued. Well, you can imagine that began to set up a little bit of a conflict with what Jesus had to say when he came and began to discuss what does it mean to be God-fearing? What does it mean to follow God? From a Pharisee standpoint, setting up the Pharisees a little bit more, the huge error they committed was is that they, had, they were speaking where God didn't speak. God didn't give us, if he wanted to give us 27 reasons why we should keep the Sabbath, or how, sorry, to keep the Sabbath holy, he would have done that. Instead, he just gave us a few hints. Well, they couldn't live with those hints, and so they began to add things to what God had to say. So these assumptions where they, they assumed what God had meant, and they, began to, they made it a law for themselves, and they said, oh, by the way, then you and you and you and you need to obey the things that we think that God told us to do. So it may have made life simple. Just give me a list. I want a list. I want to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Hey, I've done all eight. Hey, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. That may have been easy, but it was not what God had in mind. What happened was, in a lot of senses, is they began to look at the Torah and take some of the really hard teachings of the first five books of the Bible, and they say, well, God said that, but he didn't really mean it that way. This is what he meant. Now, ever how good intentioned that may have been in the beginning, it was deadly in the, in the end. Because if you think about that, that's the very same message that we heard early in Genesis when Satan said to Eve, did God really say? 
these traditions became fed the beast of self everything, self-righteousness, self-actualization, self-aggrandizement. It, it drove them to focus on themselves because what they defined were works on the outside. So if, if you'd gone to a Pharisee and you say, hey, Mr. Pharisee, why don't you keep the law? They'd be like, what? Are you kidding me? Me? What? That's all I do. That's all I, from, the, from the time I get up in the morning until the time I go to bed at night. That's all I do. Everything I have is dedicated to God. I want to please God. I'm trying to understand the scriptures. I'm trying to do what he asked me to do. And I'm even going beyond that. What do you mean I don't keep the law? Josephus tells us that in the time of Jesus, there was about 6,000 Pharisees. Um, 70 of those or so were mostly the Pharisees. There were some others on there too, but were in the ruling class of the Sanhedrin. And, and, and these guys, Josephus also tells us that these guys typically didn't live an opulent lifestyle. Josephus says generally they lived as Stoics, like the Greek Stoics, where they, they didn't have a lot of excess. They didn't do, a, there wasn't a lot of flash to them. They gave, they sold, they, they dedicated. Everything they were trying to do and live was to, to please God. They were obsessed with the pleasing God. Um, they, they truly did make sacrifices. And the, and the message for, for me in this as I began to study it is, is that, that it's, it's possible to, to, to sacrifice greatly in doing something that you think is right, but it, it's not necessarily right. And this is the situation that the Pharisees found themselves in. You know, despite their best intentions, when you speak for God, you miss the mark. Like John 5, uh, Jesus was having an interaction with the Pharisees. And uh, he said to them this. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me, and yet you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I mean, it, it, was, it, was a, it was traumatic for them. They didn't, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a tension that's really hard to understand, I think, for us, looking back over space and time or look, looking, trying to look back for, for 2,000 years. In other words, on the one hand, they had um, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and then they had their traditions, their oral Torah, and they felt both of those were the Word of God. And then with that, because the people respected them and the times they lived in, they had the ruling power. So all of that was on one side. Then here comes Jesus on this side, and Jesus says that I am the fulfillment of the law. I am the fulfillment of the Torah. Your traditions are anti-God. And oh, by the way, I have the ability to tell you that, or I have the authority to tell you that, because, as John says, he performed miracles and signs, and you know. And John said, you know, at least believe on the on the miracles and signs that Jesus was telling some of the Pharisees. I mean, Jesus did miracles and signs. Um, sometimes when they wanted one, he didn't do one, but a lot of times he did. Like at a Pharisee, so they'd go to a Pharisee's house and have dinner, and he'd heal somebody, or he'd heal them in a synagogue. You know, the man with the shriveled hand in the synagogue. He was doing things that testified to who he was. But they were, they were caught in a dilemma. They saw someone who obviously had charge over supernatural, but that someone was so completely against everything they stood for, every breathing life, breath, everything they invested in. And, and to believe him was to reject what they had already invested in. And, and they realized that there was a powerful decision to be made. In other words, if... They broke, it, Jesus said oral traditions are bunk. 
And so if they, if they accepted that, then they lost their path to salvation. They lost their path to righteousness. They lost their path to power. They lost everything. Now think about that in regards to the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3. When Nicodemus came to him at night and said, tell me what this is all about, to paraphrase. And Jesus said, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus was the preeminent of teacher, teacher, teacher of Israel. Jesus referred to him that way. So he wasn't silly. He knew what Jesus was asking him to do. He was asking him to throw away his, tr- his dependence on traditions, throw away his political power, and understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. And to do that meant losing everything that Nicodemus had. It was a huge step. So when Jesus began to confront the Pharisees, they, they had this conundrum. I, I experienced this in college briefly. I, there, was a, there was a Jewish gentleman that would come and try to evangelize us a little bit, if you will. And so I asked him one day, I said, so tell me, you acknowledge that Jesus existed and walked and was in Jerusalem? Oh, yes, we do. I said, so don't you acknowledge also that he performed miracles and signs and, and did things to demonstrate his power over um, uh, man and earth? And Oh, yeah, absolutely, we do. I said, well, why do you have a problem with Jesus as your Messiah? He said, well, it's, it's simple. Jesus performed those miracles because he was of Satan. And that's just straight out of Matthew. I mean, it, just, it was just like a couple of steps back, right? So this was the dilemma, and this is kind of where the Pharisees found themselves in. They could obviously see what they knew to be true, because it had to be true, because they've always believed it. And they saw what Jesus was doing, and they couldn't reconcile the two, so they rejected Jesus. Now, um, They also had some issues with Jesus and political power. And all I'll say about that is you may remember after Lazarus was raised from the dead, then they said, look, we're going to have to paraphrase again. We're going to have to do something about this guy because if he doesn't, the Romans are going to, quote, come away and come and take away our place and our nation. So they were threatened by Jesus politically, but it was the religious aspect that that was amazingly um, uh, in their face. It was something that they just couldn't reconcile. So Pharisee. He was obsessed with religion. Now we get a tax collector. The word technically means tax farmer. Plant some tax seeds out in the front yard, pour some water on them, grow some taxes. That's what it means. There were two two kind of tax collectors in Jesus' day. Um, There was a tax collector that basically picked up common duties, like poll taxes, and I'm not sure what other taxes they had, but common taxes. And then there was the import-export guys. Those were the guys that had the table, and they would sit on the road, and you'd come by with your stuff, and they'd say, I think your stuff is worth, and I'll take this much of it. Um, As you can imagine, they weren't Uh, (laughs) well-liked. Imagine, I mean, I was just thinking about this a little bit. I mean, we all love taxes, right? Right. but our tax system is relatively fair compared to what we saw in, in Jesus' day in the, the Roman tax system. So to bring it to today's, I mean, you got a house and you, get, you pull the, the bill out of the mail and you get, a, you get a tax bill on your house. And it may be, it's an arbitrary amount. It's not, it doesn't say your house is worth this much, so your taxes are this much. It's like, this is how much you owe me. It's like, well, I'm sorry, how'd you figure that out? It doesn't matter. This is how much you owe me. Um, well, maybe I can, can I talk to somebody else about this? Can we have a second opinion? Oh, no, there's no appeal. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm it, you know. It's like, well, what if I don't pay it? Well, we'll throw you in jail. We may take your kids and other things. And by the way, we're going to take everything you own too. It's like, wow. So that's, you know, how would, I would feel. I mean, you know, all power is taken away from you. It's like it's, it's, it's almost um, 
Well, it's very uh, random, and, and you never knew when you met a tax collector that was an import-export guy what the outcome of that could be. So they were, they were feared, they were hated, they were despised. Um, you can imagine um, they were, um, everything they did was very arbitrary. Like one day you might have a bucket of stuff, and that bucket of stuff they decided was worth two shekels. And the next day you might bring the same bucket of stuff and come by the table and they decided, oh, it's a five shekel kind of day. Same bucket of stuff. The, in essence, the tax collector's life was consumed with stuff. New stuff, old stuff, people stuff, animal stuff, food stuff, 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 stuff. That's all they thought about because the import-export guys, that's what they were, that, that's, that was their life is to find the value of stuff and collect stuff. Now, they were government-sponsored extortionists, to put it nicely, right? So they would sit at a table, and they had Roman guys in and around them, and if you didn't want to pay, well, then you'd get a, something pokey pointed in your direction. Um, and, and so it was, it, it was kind of a tough life, and that's one of the reasons they were so despised. Um, typically, you can probably extrapolate this, but there was a ton of situational ethics there was a lot of double standards. I'm your, you're my friend. Oh, you're not my friend. There was a lot of personal power involved in that. And, and even in the best case, I mean, how would this really work? Uh, in Luke 19, Jesus ended up down in Jericho eating at the house of a tax collector, a little short guy. Anybody remember his name? Zacchaeus. Yes. Cute little song about Zacchaeus. I'm not sure that, that should, he would agree to that theme song if he were to hear it. But, um, but Zacchaeus made the comment to Jesus, said, if I've defrauded or extorted anything from anybody, I'll pay them up to four times as much. Okay. Question. Whose standards? How do we decide that you were extorted or defrauded? Are we talking about the standards for the Roman government? You know, I'm, they weren't too kindly. We're talking about the standards for um, you, Mr. Tax Collector, or how about me, Mr. Taxpayer? I've got some different standards than everybody else does. So this whole system made it easy for them to be despised. So you get maybe a better sense of who the tax collector was. So in summary, on the players, we have on one side, we have a, um, the guy wearing the, the ostensible white hat, right, the Pharisee, and he's obsessed with religion. On the other side, we have the guy obsessed with stuff, the tax collector, wearing the black hat, of course, and he's obsessed with, with, the, with stuff. So now that we've set the table, that kind of brings us back to the parable. So now let's look at the parable. Let's go through it a verse at a time and try to take that character sketches in the background and make something of it as we walk through it. Verse 9. Um, Jesus began and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they, they is the implication there, despised others. Well, the Pharisees should have known something was wrong about that. I mean, they knew their Old Testament. Over Jeremiah 17, it's just there's lots of places in the Old Testament to find this. But in Jeremiah 17, one of my favorite Old Testament chapters about the heart, starting in verse 5, let me read for just a little bit. The Pharisees knew this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, which is not inhabited. I mean, the Pharisees knew that. Uh, they knew Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than him. 
So regardless of how the Pharisees may have started out, the Pharisees should have known, look, we find ourselves in a place where we're offended at things that we shouldn't be offended about. We shouldn't be trusting in ourselves, and we certainly shouldn't be despising anybody else. But they did. They had no excuse. So Jesus then began to launch into the parable. You know, it was a little bit of the ministry of the sharp elbows. He, it wasn't quite the lion roaring at the Pharisees that it was right at the end of Jesus' life. And it wasn't the wooing that he, he was kind of when he wooed, uh, say, Nicodemus or some people at the early part of his ministry. He was wanting to poke him a little bit and get a response, and that's what this parable was about. So in verse 10, he said, well, let's use an example of you guys. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I think it's kind of neat out of this deal that both the white hat guy and the black hat guy went to the temple. They were both seeking God. They were both trying to find a way to have a relationship with God. Both felt the need to communicate with God. Both went to the temple, and they went up to the temple to pray. Um, so at this point in the story, we, we don't know whether, when we're, as a listener, we're sitting there listening to Jesus tell the story. We're not sure exactly how this is going to come out. We know that there's a point he's trying to make about Pharisees, but he's got this despicable tax collector in the deal, and they've both gone to the temple. Is there some scandal going to happen? What, how's this going to work out? Well, verse 11 and 12, we let the, the Pharisee, Jesus lets the Pharisee speak. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Let me stop there for a second. Well, at this point... He's, Jesus just made everybody in the crowd that's a Pharisee, related to a Pharisee, knows a Pharisee, likes a Pharisee, he's made them all mad. Why did he make them mad? So the Pharisees, from dawn till dusk, were obsessed with what? Religion. Trying to please... God, right? They had a list of rules, things, actions, stuff they wanted to do. So Jesus starts off telling the story of the Pharisee that he stood and prayed with himself. It's like, I'm not praying to myself. I'm not obsessed with myself. My whole life is consumed with pleasing you, knowing you, serving you, Lord. What do you mean praying with myself? I mean, if Paul were in the audience, he would be Saul at the time, right? He'd be... He'd be if he were in the audience, he would be massively offended at what Jesus had to say. Well, so Jesus then went on and said, uh, through the, you know, had the Pharisees say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. With that, Jesus said, Look, I, the Pharisee was saying, I'm glad I'm, I don't have character issues like some of these other people do. But then he went further. He said, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I possess. Well, that was not a, a, a Pentateuch issue. That wasn't the, the Torah. This was part of the traditions of men that they had developed over the years. So the Pharisee was saying, I'm doing all the Torah asked me to do, and I'm doing all this great stuff that the oral Torah told me to do. He thought those things were righteous. He thought that God would be happy with him if he did that. Only problem was is he became at that moment a, an oxymoron. He became a righteous a person, I should say, with righteous pride. You know, he became somebody that said, "Hey, look at everything I've done, and oh, isn't that great?" In doing so, 
he exposed the inner workings of his heart. Now, to these, these things to the, to the Pharisee were right. They were just. They were right. Um, he was self-sacrificing. These things that he was doing were hard. He was on the narrow way. Remember, Josephus told us there was only 6,000 Pharisees in the whole of Jerusalem uh, or whole of Israel. Um, and, and so there weren't very many people that were willing to do what I'm doing. It's like, Lord, I, there's not, I, I'm doing the hard stuff. I'm working hard. I'm staying late. I'm coming early. I'm doing all the things you asked me to do. You must be pleased with me. And then he, he even went further. He said, um, we know from the first verse, from verse 9, um, the implication there is, is that he, he, he was saying, and, and look at all these people that are not good enough, not dedicated enough, not committed enough, not sold out enough to do the same things that I'm doing. Poor people, I'm pitying those folks. The problem is, is the Pharisee thought that he was pouring out his lifeblood on the altar of God. What Jesus was trying to tell him is, you're not pouring your lifeblood out on the altar of God. You're pouring your lifeblood out on an altar, and the altar's got your name on it. You know, in Matthew uh, 15, um, Jesus was having an interaction with the Pharisees. And they were, the Pharisees were saying, look, we have some money, and, and we know that we probably should give it to our mom and dad, but really what we're going to do is it's going to be a gift devoted to God. And so if we'll devote it to God, then we don't have to give it to our parents. Jesus said, you violate the law when you do that. So that, that's yet another example of how a self-focused Pharisee felt like that they could go in and say, well, God didn't really mean this is what he meant. And they could make assumptions that essentially rewrote the law. And they could make assumptions, essentially, that what happened was is that they were creating ways for them to earn favor with God, which is exactly the opposite of what a holy and a righteous person can and should try to be doing. So the Pharisee was self-focused, self-absorbed. He loved himself. He was proud of his accomplishments. He was comforted by his accomplishments. He felt good. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He felt like that he was in the right place at the right time. And uh, it's quite possible that he thought himself blessed. And one of the reasons that he stood to pray was to show everybody, hey, you can do this too. Paul tells us later in Philippians, and we won't go there tonight, but Paul tells us a little bit about, hey, I was a great Pharisee. I did all these things. Um, it, it, was, it was quite a dedication. I mean, Paul studied under Gamaliel for quite some time, and, and that was a life of dedication. That's who these guys were. But Jesus had a different way of saying it. Jesus said, look, this is in Matthew 5-7. through 7, The Sermon on the Mount was largely addressed to the Pharisees, and, and through many different ways he said, look, the things that happen on the outside are not necessarily indicative of what happens on the inside. And until you get the inside things right, the outside things, do they matter? They don't really make that much difference. So we get to verse 13. And the tax collector had a little different approach. He was standing far off. It says the tax collector standing far off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, Mr. Tax Collector lived life as an extortionist. Why was he far off? Maybe he didn't, the people didn't like him. Maybe he didn't like the people. Maybe he was afraid of the people. Maybe he just felt he wanted to be removed from God. You know, was he far enough off out, in, out to the temple where he could see the Holy of Holies? And that's what he was looking to? 
uh, or he didn't look to, in this case, he didn't raise his eyes. I don't know, but he, he was away. He was, he was far off, evidently within sight of the Pharisee, but separated. Now, he didn't raise his eyes. He, was, he, he, was just, he, he found himself before a God in, 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 in a way, and his awareness of sin and the separation from God drove him to his knees where he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast. There's only one other time in Scripture we see the beating of the breast. Does anybody happen to remember when that is? At Jesus' crucifixion, you look around the base of the cross, and you see people, Luke, I believe it describes, people beating their breast in sorrow, beating their breast in grief, uh, extreme, extreme emotional disturbance. That's, what, that's the picture we see of the tax collector. And he, then he ended that by crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He saw himself as a failure before God. He saw himself, we can see from this passage, that he was horrified by his accomplishments. He didn't measure up. He knew he was an extortionist. He knew of all the, 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 the ways that life challenged him, and he failed on a regular basis. He knew that he missed the mark. Um, and if he knew that, that meant that he knew what God had to say about those issues. And he took God at his word. Um, in 1 John 1, 9, um, if you uh, uh, want to turn over to 1 John, 1 John is a great book. It's a simple little book written at the end of John's life. And I say simple only in the sense that the language is simple. The messages are really, really profound. In 1 John 1, 9... John tells us, or I'll start in verse 8. John tells us this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, who does that sound like in this parable? A Pharisee. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who does that sound like in the parable? The tax guy. That's right, tax collector. Interesting word, confess, there. If we confess, homo legeo is the word. Homo meaning the same, legeo talking about words spoken literally to say the same thing. So when we, when we look at 1 John, what, we're, what he's telling us in verse 9 is, is if we say the same thing about our sins, and the implication there is that God says about our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 10 says the same thing when it says, if you confess Jesus as Lord, the same homo legeo. If you say the same thing about Jesus as Lord that God says about Lord, that God says about Jesus, then salvation is at the door, to paraphrase. So what we see is a tax collector who was willing to homo legeo, to say the same thing about his sin as God said about his sin. Now, the interesting part about that is, is that that is the difference. It's presented in a number of different ways in Scripture. But that's the difference between someone who is justified, as we'll see in the next verse, and somebody who's not justified. Is, is it, what is their attitude? And this is why I retitled the, the, the parable, if it was. What's their attitude about man? And what's their attitude about God? I think it's interesting. The tax collector lived in a world of stuff. Stuff, 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 stuff. Madam Blueberry, stuff, Mart, stuff all the way down. Stuff, 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 stuff. Right? Pharisee lived in a world of religion. You know, stuffed shirts. <laughs> Hall hats. 
You know, crazy little things like that, right? Everything was like, I gotta please God, I gotta please God, I gotta please God. Question Who had the biggest impediment toward to, to knowing God, to coming to God? It wasn't it wasn't the stuff guy, right? It was the religious guy. Now the interesting part to me, another interesting part, is both of these guys were sinners. Both of them fell far short of what God wanted them to do. Both of them were disobedient, and both of them were lawless. Big difference here, right? The Pharisee tried to cover up his sin and lawlessness by saying, but I'm doing these things? See? The tax collector was like, "Mm -mm. (laughs) I'm toast, Lord. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. So in verse 14, we get, I think, to the pinnacle of this lesson. And Jesus is trying to teach us. He says, I tell you this, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Boom! Saved. Justified. Huh? Okay, so we got Mr. Religious over here that spent his whole life. And we got Mr. Tax Collector that spent five minutes (laughs) or whatever. But it was the attitude of the heart that we saw. In other words, Romans, remember Romans 4 that we read? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness comes in our life in a couple different ways, right? There's some big theological terms, but justification we're talking about today is where God takes our name from one side of the ledger and puts it on the other side of the ledger and puts, you know, no debt owed on that side. Sanctification is what? Anybody want to give me a working definition of sanctification? I'm sorry? Striving against sin. In sanctification, what happens in, in your life? Do you get better? Do you get worse? What happens to your holiness? You mature in Christ's likeness. Do you ever make it to a particular, you know, oh, I'm just like Christ now? No. But, but, the, but, when, but when justification comes... The Holy Spirit, Romans tells us, the Holy Spirit comes as a deposit. Corinthians says it's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Romans tells us that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit begins to generate in us a holiness that we can never generate on our own. And one day, the third step will be glorification. When God presents us in heaven to Him in such a way that we can live in the same place as God. Which is just almost unthinkable. I don't know how to think about that. Well, the test of who you are as you walk through this process is who do you believe, what do you believe about God and what do you believe about man? The way the Bible says it is, do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? Can you sit here tonight and say, I love what God loves. I hate what God hates. The Pharisees should have known this. I mean, this is sprinkled all through the Old Testament. One example is Amos 5 when he says, Seek good and and not evil, that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good, establish justice at the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. There's some other great places in the Old Testament. The the Pharisees knew, they, they knew these issues were. Yet they refused to come, as Jesus said, to Jesus, to, to, to the word of life so that they might have life. So 
So in this parable, we have a contrast between a Pharisee who wouldn't honor himself and a tax collector who knew he had no honor at all. The Pharisee, in his selfish heart, he he believed in the sovereignty of man. Man can do it. I can do it. There's a list. I'll work on it. Whereas the tax collector was a sovereignty of God guy. I am incapable. God is capable. I throw myself, Lord, on your mercy. Jesus was pretty hard on the Pharisees. And, and, and from the very earliest days, Matthew 5, you know, he, he explained to people that were listening to him as he preached the Sermon on the Mount. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about that a minute. The scribes and the Pharisees, they get up in the morning, they start doing God stuff. They go to bed at night just after they finish the God stuff and they're up early. I mean, how can I be better than that? And it, the conundrum was is, is that they, they were doing things in one way that didn't put them in the favor of God, and the tax collector and the others were doing another thing. So what was that thing? Jesus told us in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount a little bit later that there are two roads. Both roads are labeled heaven, this way to heaven, right? Two gates. Both of them are labeled heaven. Two destinations. Both of them are labeled heaven. There's two groups, two trees, two fruits, two professions, two builders, two foundations, two houses. What do you think Jesus was trying to say? Well, the two that he was talking about is very illustrated in this particular passage with the Pharisees and the tax collectors. And the basic question is, is how can I be right with God? I mean, this is an important question. And we'll talk about, I want to spend pretty much the rest of the evening discussing a few things and talking about the implications of this. But this is a big deal. So when Jesus began to talk about it, and and to all the Pharisees and to the tax collector, as epitomized in in this parable, but all through Scripture, he basically said there's two ways that man tried to be right with God. There's the human achievement, and there's the divine accomplishment. Now, human achievement focuses on man's works, what you can do. It's externally focused. There's an action list, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, it's self-righteous. You look at yourself and say, hey, I think, think I've done pretty well. Um, it, the way that all works out is you, 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 you're measured by a set of rules. And it's really cool in that system because you can create your own rules. <laughs> and then you can create rules that you attain. And then you can go work on those rules and say, see, I did a pretty good job at those rules. As a matter of fact, I did just as good a job, maybe even better, than anybody else can do. So I feel really good, Lord, that you're really happy with me and that, that I certainly deserve the place that you're going to give me in heaven because you're real happy. You know, I'm sure you're happy with me because th- those, those rules, are, they, they honor you. They, they bless you. And, and moreover, if you're trying to work, put this all together on your own, then you, you tend to, and this is what the Pharisees did, is look down. You saw this in the parable. You look down on people. They're, they're not willing to make the commitment. They're not willing to sign the check. They're not willing to devote the time. They're not willing to do the things that you're willing to do. And you have pity on them, and you despise them. It's like, I can't believe they wouldn't do that. What that ends up in is a life of pride. It also ends up a life without God forever. What Jesus was trying to tell the Pharisees is, look, salvation, your relationship with God is not, a, uh, not a, on the basis of what you can do. It's on the basis of what God has done and, and will do for you. 
It's God's grace that grants salvation. It creates an internally focused heart. It, it, you begin to get to the point to where you're denying yourself. You're not exalting yourself. This isn't about something that you've done. There's not a set of lists. You're not, you're not thinking about, oh, how great I am. This is all about me. You understand that, that you'll never be able to measure up to the rules, the, 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 the principles, the thing that God has asked you to do. Um, you know that it's un- unattainable. You understand that you miss the mark, that you'll never be able to make the mark, and that your only hope for salvation is to cry out for mercy and forgiveness. But here is the beautiful part about that process is, is because now you understand who you are as a man and you understand who God is as our creator, then the creator God that put all this in place to start with and created the rules and put the system in place then says, oh, wait a minute. I tell you what, this is the, what we'll do. It's because you, homo legale, you agree with me about who you are and you agree with me about who I am. This is what I'm going to do is, is that that, that God the Son is going to come to earth and he will pay the price that I really should demand of you. And then I will grant you salvation. So the rule maker becomes the price payer. And it, 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 the focus is not on me. It's not about me. And now I see everybody as equal in value and equal in sinfulness. And my life now is one of repentance. It's like, Lord, I would love to be better for you. You know, may your grace and your mercy rule in my life. Two roads, two ways. And it's it epitomized by what we see here in Luke 18. Now, there's a lot of people all over the world that think they can understand how these systems work. And there's all these religious systems that are created. And, and you guys, as you go to college, as you go to school, as you show up in work, and you show up in different marketplaces, in the marketplace, you'll see all these different kinds of views about God come together. But they're really not as complicated as they seem. There's only really about four basic worldviews is the way you, you look at God. One of them is a worldview that's, that's just world religions and cults. And they basically say, look, here's a list. One, two, three, four, five. You do these things, and that leads to salvation. Works, completely works-oriented, no divine attributes, whatever. This is what you do, you get salvation. You don't make this, then you go pay your penalty over here. Then there's legalistic Christianity. Christianity, the so-called Christianity that, that embraces a Christ, but they embrace, it's part of you and part of him. And this is kind of the way it works. It's like, yes, you need to have faith in Christ. And what, what happens is, is Christ does his part, and then you do your part. There's a list over here, and you need to do your part. Okay, so if Christ does his part and you do your part, then that leads to salvation. Now, that's completely wrong. Galatians 2.16, we just read, no man is saved by works. And Paul further makes an argument in that passage, you can't take any works and add it to faith without turning the whole thing into works. You know, it's like the, the ink spot that colors everything. It's like the old Dr. Seuss book where there was a little red drop that they started at the first of the book, and by the end of the book, it covered the whole page. That's what works do to faith. Legalistic Christianity is completely wrong and never be right. Now, one of the responses to legalistic Christianity says, well, works doesn't have anything to do with it. There's a group that says, okay, so we're going to have faith. And what faith means to us is, is that we believe at some point in time in our life that we said Jesus is Lord, Romans 10. Jesus is Lord. You say Jesus is Lord, and then there's a celestial checkbox. 
that gets checked, and that leads to salvation. No mention of any changed life, no commitment, no change in what you think is important, no change in what you love, no change in what you hate, no change in you whatsoever. It's just that there was a big box that got checked, and boom, you're in. You're in the club. Never get kicked out. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity, Christianity that Jesus talked about, two roads, two ways, two heavens, is this. Is, is that, that through faith that you come to, that is a gift of God, that you begin to understand not only is Jesus Christ Lord, but that you begin to understand that all of life revolves around who He is. You understand who God is. You understand who you are. And so it's not just a faith that says, oh, I, I understand or I'll acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, but it's a faith that lets you step out into thin air and trust God even when you don't understand Him. And with that kind of faith comes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and it leads you to salvation. And because you have the Holy Spirit in your life that leads to salvation, it always produces good stuff. Okay? The biblical way to say that is, is that there were works prepared and many works prepared in advance for you to do. I probably misquoted that. Right? But salvation never comes without works. That's the biblical view of Christianity. So there's nothing you can do. There's nothing on this side of the equation you do to merit God's favor, to stay in his favor. You can't do the Pharisee thing. You can't make up the list. You can't decide, I know what's best. You can't make it all about me. This doesn't have anything to do with me. This has to do with God. But if you come to him in humility and you trust him and you believe him and you're willing to lean on him, even when you don't understand him, then God in his graciousness grants justification. He grants sanctification and he will lead you to glorification. And he produces those things in your life. Well, what are the implications? What's the enormity of this, of this parable? Um, I, I, I've said this a lot, but I really do think this is a great way to think about the parable about what do you believe about man and what do you believe about God? Um, C.S. Lewis famously said, you don't have a soul. You don't have a soul, and you don't have a soul, and you don't have a soul, and you don't have a soul. No, 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 that's wrong. You are a soul, and you have a body. Now, that's biblical. That is completely biblical. We don't teach that principle a lot, but I would challenge you, if, you, if there's one thing you can take away from this parable tonight, is take that away and look at what the Bible has to say about that. See if I'm right about that. See, we as people are made up of two parts. We're material and we're immaterial. The material part of us is what we see today here on earth. The immaterial part is that soul that's eternal. It was born sometime in eternity past and it will live through eternity future. Never to die. Now, the material part that we've got here is going to die one day. And, and then that material will be replaced with another kind of material body that's a heavenly body that we don't quite understand but... Uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, when we see him, you know, it's a little bit of a mystery, but, but we'll be like him when we see him as he is. So we, we get some sort of material body, but that's not the we is the soul, it's not the body. So when I look at it, you, when I look at Chris, what do I see? I see sandals and flip flops. <laughs> I see a homo sapiens, to put it in technical terms. I see, I see a body. 
You know, when I look down at my arm, I have begun to adjust my thinking, and it's helpful. I, I see a pinnacle of God's creation in all of the universe. You know, in all of the universe, and anywhere it done, the, the pinnacle of the complexity and how well this thing works, even when it's broken down a bit. And it's become helpful for me to think about this as my body is something I've been given. So my soul animates this body. Well, I'm a techno nerd, okay? So my next thought was, hey, I've got myself a biological robot. It's a pretty complex robot, right? But I do. I can look at you. I can look at my beloved wife. I can look in her eyes, and I will never see her soul. All I see is her body. Now, these souls that we possess, I I hope that I can open up your understanding to the reality of eternity by doing this. Because it's these souls that that Jesus was trying to address, and that's why he spent so much time with the Pharisees. Because they worked so hard, and yet they missed the mark. They didn't understand that this wasn't about what happened here on earth. This is about eternity, and it's about an immaterial self. So this Bible, the, 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 the thing that the Pharisees didn't do in, in the Pharisee and the parable, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, is they didn't take Jesus seriously. They didn't take the Bible seriously. They said, well, we think you mean it, but not so much. Well, my challenge to you is to take the Bible seriously. And I'll just, there's some points I want to leave you with. Number one is, is that, that in the secular world you run into, the secular world right now, the state of the secular world is, is just going nuts over the analysis of these kinds of ideas about who we are and where we are and where we're going. You, you, if you've been in the Truth Project on Sunday morning, you've seen Dell Tackett wrestle with some of these things. And the bottom line is, is that, that they, it's, it's driving them absolutely crazy because it's obnoxiously obvious that everything we see was made out of things that we can't see. And they don't know what to do with that. It doesn't matter if it's biology or physics or whatever it is. Now, <laughs> the interesting part about that is, is that if you flip over to 11, uh, Hebrews 11.3, and I'll just read it for you. It's just real simple. Hebrews 11.3, check this out. By faith... We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what was seen was not made out of the things which were visible. Now that sounds like a Sunday school verse for children. The truth is, is that verse is confounding the smartest and the brightest and the most well-equipped people in the world today. It's preposterous as far as they're concerned, but they can't get away from it. Even Scientific American about 10 years ago, interesting, something like that, they said, we think that the universe is likely a holographic projection of a larger reality from somewhere else. Like, what? So religious people, the, the Pharisees of our day, okay? Many people think they're religious, and they've invented all these systems, much like the Pharisees tried to invent a system. People in your life have invented a system. Please don't be one of those people. Don't be that guy. People say, well, God put a set of things together and, and, and in motion, and all we have to do is say the right words or punch the right button or, or raise the hand at the right point in time or walk an aisle, and it's all good, and we know where it's going, and it doesn't work. That's not the sovereignty of God. That's the sovereignty of man. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. Um, 
that just simply doesn't work. You can't pray a certain prayer, get baptized a certain way, do a certain thing, walk a certain path, show up at a certain place at a certain number of times, dress a certain way, do a certain thing. That doesn't have anything to do with how God feels about you. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the important thing that Jesus begged all of us to do is love what I love and hate what I hate. Well, the Bible is a strange book. And it's also the only truthful book you'll ever read. Take it seriously. So, in this parable, we see the Father's world. A father who is very kind, a father who's very loving, who a father that every time that somebody comes and says, I recognize who you are as creator, and I recognize who I am as somebody that may have great intentions, but I'm just a, a rebellious disaster. Anytime God finds somebody like that, he treats them with compassion. He gives them peaceful pastures. He brings good things into their life. There may be hardship, there may be trouble, but it has blessing that comes with it. Romans eight twenty eight and beyond. This is our Father's world, and we need to learn how to live in it. We need to understand what, who God is, and we need to understand who we are. It's, it's His world. It's His rules. It's His past. It's His future. It's His universe. It's His earth, His animals, His plants, His purpose, His destiny, His will, and His character. It's His life infused, His love given, His breath that flows, His heart that beats. What in the world do we possess that we haven't been given? Have you ever thought about that? If you ever think you're in charge of your body, just hang around a while. <laughs> It'll quit working too. The Bible is the only book that the world is, that's ever been exposed to the world that's actually a lens beyond the wall that's been erected to eternity. You'll never find another lens to eternity anywhere else. The Bible is the only place. And it testifies to itself. And it testifies to itself in a way that you can believe it. God is not a God who comes to us and says, oh, trust me, but then doesn't give us, give us enough as humans that he created so that we can trust him. He, he's not like, this isn't Lucy and Charlie Brown trying to kick the football, right? God is not going to pull things away from us. He gives us what we need to know him and to trust him. So the question, the real existential questions of, of life are always beyond men. So my question to you is, what are you, where are you going to be when your robot quits? When your biological robot wears out, what are you going to do? Where are you going to be? You know, you and me, we're made a majo day. We have a perishable body, an imperishable soul. And without God, everything that we have, every thought, every attitude, every, every moment of everything we do is selfish. You know, I, I don't think I can have a thought that doesn't start with me. I wished it weren't true. But I live in Romans 7 there. I, you know, the, more I'm aware, the, more, the further I go, the more I'm aware of it. So my challenge to you tonight is don't be like the Pharisee. Don't be that guy. Take God seriously. Don't put, God, don't put words in God's mouth. Uh, and I want to end with this illustration. Um, when Jesus was here on earth, um, he had several things to say. He was talking about the Old Testament. When the Pharisees kind of bugged him a little bit, he said, Look, the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. How long was he in the heart of the earth? Three days and three nights. We just got through studying Daniel, 
where Daniel was told from the time the command is issued to restore and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem until the Mashiach Nagid, until the, the prince comes and presented as Messiah in Jerusalem, is going to be 173,880 days. How many days was it between the time from the command to rebuild the wall till Jesus rode down the hill on a donkey? 173,880 days. How many days do you think he meant? <laughs> See, but here's the hard part. Over in the next chapter, Luke 19, Jesus comes and he looks at Jerusalem and he said, because you didn't recognize the day of your visitation, then there's going to be an encampment built all around you and a siege works and, and all of you will be, to paraphrase, destroyed. And not, not a stone will be left unturned. And, and Sure enough, in AD 70, here comes Titus Vespasian with the 5th, the 10th, the 12th, and the 15th Roman legion. And they set up camp around Jerusalem. They destroyed 1.1 million Jews that were living in, that were in Jerusalem. They captured them during the time of the feast, and they didn't let them go. Josephus tells us 97,000 got captured as slaves and sent off to the slave mines. Misty and Lauren and I had this amazing, I can't believe it even happened experience, where we got to go to Israel last fall. And one of the experiences was that we went down in the south of the city of David and we started at the Pool of Siloam. It was only found about 12 years ago. And it was excavated and, uh, by one of our tour guides, actually. And he also excavated this trench. And we walked up, not just a trench, but a tunnel, but we walked up this tunnel that was a sewer tunnel all the way up through the city of David. It was about this wide. It was about this tall. It had a rock ceiling, rock floor, and rock sides. And it ran all the way up to the southwest corner of the edifice known as the Temple Mount today. And it was, it was a sewage tunnel to flow. All the sewage would go down through there and it would drain out to the Kidron Valley. Well, when Ellie excavated that, he, uh, uh, he, he led us in another tour, but, but the stories were there. And he, he, we found out when he excavated that, that he found bones, human bones, pottery and, and, and trinkets and various things from the, 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 the period, the Jewish period there that, that was around AD 70. And he even found a Roman sword, an intact Roman sword about that long that was down in there. And what he had found was, is he had found that the stones in a couple of places over that sewer had been pulled up. And the story ostensibly is, I mean, the best guess is, is that, that when the Romans were sacking Jerusalem the, and, and they had killed everybody they could kill on the surface, then they started looking around and said, hey, I think I hear somebody down here. And they literally dug up the stones, pulled them open, jumped down into a sewer trench and killed everybody that was there. Why did that happen? Jesus said it's because you didn't recognize the day of your visitation. Now, is Jesus a scary person? Is God scary? No. God is gracious and loving and kind and gentle and gives you good pasture. But he has always, always, always punished those that will hold their fist in his face and say, I will not submit to you. I will not recognize you as creator God. And I am the captain of my own destiny. Do not be that guy. Well, I've spoken a little bit longer than I intended to. But the good news for you guys is it was 25 minutes shorter than it was yesterday. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing. I hope that something that I said, something that people thought, um, brought them to a place where they understand a little bit more about your sovereignty and your will and your purposes in our life. Um, Lord, I'm honest. if I'm honest with you, just everything you say and do just blows my mind. I... I 
trapped in the space that we're in, it's so difficult for me to understand what you had to say. Lord, may I I trust you when I don't understand you. May I take your word seriously. Um, May I follow the things you have to say. Lord, thank you for the redemption of your people. Thank you for the redemption of me. Uh, We don't deserve any of the gifts you've given us. And uh, we confess that we are sinful. We confess that we're rebellious. And we ask you to recreate in us a clean heart. Thank you so much for your time together. Bless your people. Pray a special blessing on the the camp uh, revive over the next week that uh, you reach out and touch young people and that they really get a sense of who you are and begin to take you seriously. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.